Amen. Happy Father's Day again to all the dads. Uh, it's good to be together. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 24, if you want to make ready your copy of Scripture. It's 1 Samuel chapter 24. We'll be starting at the beginning there. As we jump into this, though, I just want to start with a question. Um, what are some things worth confronting to you? I'd, like, oh, that's, that's a great way to build some tension there. Like, what are some things that are worth confronting in your life or around you that you see in others' lives? Are there things that you think, oh, that's worth confronting? I hope that there are some things. There are definitely some things that I think are worth confronting. Um, so I'm just going to kind of take advantage of the moment to have a microphone and confront some things, all right? So, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, actually, there are some, th- like, I do think that these are some things that just kind of on the top of my head this week I, I found worth confronting. Um, and this is not an indictment on you, um, but just some things that I think culturally are worth confronting. A 2017 survey indicated a vast array of responses when asked to describe the Bible. So survey comes in to churches, to Christians, and asks, well, can you describe the Bible to me? How would you describe the Bible to me? And this is what blows my mind. The majority, 52% actually, the majority describe the Bible as a good source of morals. Hear me clearly. There are great morals that you can learn from the scripture. That is not the point of the Bible. The Bible is not foremost about you learning morality. The Bible is a story of the gospel, the good news of God's redemptive work in creating man and then redeeming man, bringing us back into his good relationship and standing with him. So the Bible is not meant to be a source of good morals. We've actually had people leave this church um, and I don't, I don't share a lot of these things. We've had people leave this church because I don't give enough practical life advice to you. Just give me a good moral, a good takeaway of how I can lead my family better or how I can be a better boss or whatever and then leave. That is not my calling. That is not what the scripture aims to do either. The scripture and what we are to do as a church is to celebrate and proclaim to herald the gospel, the good news. That is what will lead to life change. And yes, there are great things in here that you can learn in terms of what is a good moral or how to be a good dad or be a good boss or employer or whatever. There's great information in that and we don't want to shy away from any of that. But our foremost calling is for you to know life everlasting in Christ the one who has come. And all of the scriptures are pointing to Jesus and what he would do for us. Jesus said so himself. Talking to some scribes one day, he's like, look, you search the scriptures for in them you think you find eternal life, and rightly so, but you've missed that they all point to me. You can read that account in John chapter five. He's saying everything about the scriptures, all the law, all the prophets, all the wisdom literature, everything in all of the scriptures is all pointing to Jesus. And so we look to him. We must remember him. The Bible is not just a good source of morals. In fact, if we preach it like it is just a good source of morals, um, one, this is lame. You could go have a lot more fun at the YMCA and learn some morals, just being honest. That's not what we do. And two, if we preach this as just a good source of morals, that is called legalism. And that is a weight that you will never live up to. That it will just be oppressive and crushing. No, the Bible is freeing, it's life-giving. It points to the gospel, this good news that Christ has accomplished everything for us. The next thing is um, I learned that only 32% of Americans that regularly attend a Protestant church read the Bible daily. 
Only 32% of Americans that regularly attend a Protestant church read the Bible daily. And take a closer look at that stat. That was regular attenders of churches. And do you know, um, if you look further into this, a regular attender is such a small part of America. Many who consider themselves regular attenders and active members of churches are now coming to church on an average of once a month. People who, who wholeheartedly say, I am an active member of a church who go to church regularly, their regular attendance is about once a month. Hey, think about that. Think, the, culturally, we have come to a place, I actually was talking with a pastor friend here in town who was saying that he's watched how over the last two years, the average person is now coming about every three weeks. And, and I just heard this past week about another pastor at another church in town who was saying they actually do all their strategic planning of how they teach, what content they go through and everything with the understanding that they're gonna see people about once a month. And think about the nightmare that that creates. If you're trying to systematically lead people in growing in the word that leads to salvation, as Peter said, like there is not a plan B. It's, it's by the word that you grow into salvation. This is what you're to go from milk to meat, the author of Hebrews argues. Like, press in. And then you have people who say, like, they are your average Christian attending once a month. That's 12 times a year that you would gather together with the people of God to sing his praises, to be encouraged, to spur each other on to love and good works, to sit under the proclaimed word that is to shepherd your soul. 12 times in a year, and to think that that is normal. And I'm, I'm confronting this, not as an oppression, but because I want, to, I want you to lead the way in encouraging others. Like, there's freedom, there's life here. We need to be together. As Hebrews 10 talks about, like, we gather all the more as we see the day approaching to spur each other on to love and good works. And it's as the day approaches, the day of the Lord, as the love of many will grow cold and fall away, this great falling away, we are meant to reach out and say, no, 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 we must come together. And then you think on a day like today, Father's Day, did you know that if, if you look at American churches as a whole, the three greatest attendances typically for an average American church, Christmas, Easter, and Mother's Day. As the women are leading so much when scripture calls the man to lead the family. And then Father's Day, one of the lowest attended Sundays of the year. And why is this? There are things worth confronting, but not to create an oppressive weight, but to say, no, I want you to see the life, the freedom, the beauty of what it is to actually step into your calling and to be obedient to Christ. So I have things that I definitely find worth confronting. Do you? That's my little soapbox. Hold on. <laughs> uh, what is your aim, though, in confrontation? What is your aim in confrontation? This past week, um, my dad and I, kind of for Father's Day for him, we, we went fishing, but really it's for me. <laughs> you know, I love fishing. But we, we go fishing, and we take my son and, and my niece, Mia, and, and so 
uh, Leland and Mia are, are there on the boat with me and my dad, and we're, and we're catching fish. And Leland has this point system, and I don't know how it works, but he always wins. But he's got a point system, so like anything we pull in, like he assigns a point value, and like yeah, it's great. It makes the day a lot of fun. You just like all these surprises. Like if you hook a shark, you get some points. If you like all kinds of stuff. Like my dad almost had a flounder in the boat. He was trying to hand the rod over to Leland, and it breaks off, and then like then it gets. I don't. Even, do you remember the point value? I don't know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, see, see, he gets a hundred points. Uh, hundred points for the flounder. <laughs> but we're having a great time, and and uh, the way this works is Leland gets really excited, and, and I love that. Like I, fishing is my favorite thing to do with my son, and so um, he gets so excited that he, like his cousin Mia is over there, and he just when he gets excited, he wants to get close to you, and so he's getting closer and closer all day long to Mia, and so you know what happens, they're both casting, lines get tangled, and so I'm spending a significant part of my day untangling lines. And so at one point, I confront him because I'm frustrated. And I confront him about this, and then I feel super convicted because I realize, am I confronting him because I actually want to teach him how to do this better so that he can enjoy this more? Or because I really just want to communicate my frustration, that I would rather be reeling in fish than untangling your line. But we have to actually think when we decide something is worth confronting, what is the aim in confronting that? Why do we want to confront that? What is our heart in going into that confrontation? And that's what we're going to explore today, what the aim is in our confrontation. So 1 Samuel chapter 24, I hope you were there. Uh, we're gonna be picking up the first verse and we are continuing this story of David and Saul and just the insanity that has been ensuing as Saul has grown to hate David, want David to be dead, and David has been anointed as the next king, and yet here is Saul still reigning as the current king. So we pick up in verse one of chapter 24. It says, when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the wilderness near En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 of Israel's fit young men and went to look for David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. So what's happening here? David has been on the run. So we, we skipped a couple chapters there, but what has happened from last week where we left off to this week is David is still on the run. He's gone to some places. There's this kind of funny story, if you've never read it, where he shows up at one city and the king kind of perceives him as a threat and David knows that. And so David starts acting like he has literally lost his mind. He's drooling all over his beard and like scratching words and stuff on the city gates. And he's just acting crazy. being like, if I'm crazy, then I don't think that he'll perceive me as a threat. And so then he's just like, you get out of here. But David is actually accumulating more and more men. Like basically all the disgruntled, all the disenchanted, all the disenfranchised, all the people who have been hurt in the kingdom and want new leadership, they're coming to David. And so he's now growing his own personal army here and he's fleeing and running and there comes a point when Saul is chasing him and Saul's like actually on one hilltop and David's on the other and they're kind of like running across like, oh no, this is not gonna be good. He's overtaking us. But then the Philistines, kind of like the, the crazy enemy of the Israelites, they start attacking and word gets to Saul and Saul has to break off his pursuit of David to go deal with the Philistines. And so then we pick up back here and now Saul, returning from his fight with the Philistines, is told, hey, David is an En Gedi. He's in this tropical oasis. And so Saul brings together 3,000 fit young men. Like word has surely spread that David is accumulating quite a few guys, but David had 400 and then it grows to 600. Saul's like, I'm coming with 3,000 of my best. Saul hates David. He wants him dead. And so verse three, 
When Saul came to the sheep pens along the road, a cave was there, and he went in to relieve himself. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. What? <laughs> Plot twist. Like, hey, everyone's got to take care of business, okay? Saul wants some serious privacy. And so to take care of business, to relieve himself, to go to the bathroom, he goes into a cave. Like, well, that just sounds kind of dangerous. Like, he must really like his privacy. He's going to go into a cave to relieve himself. And guess what is in the cave? David and 600 of his men are in this same cave where Saul unknowingly walks in to go take a relief break. Like, what is this? Like, Saul is coming in to go to the bathroom and David and his men are hiding in the shadows of this cave. Like, can you imagine that moment? As Saul, like, I just, I have to imagine him just kind of like whistling a tune. You know, when you go to the bathroom, you have to sing. The acoustics are great. And so he just, dun, 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 dun. he's about to take care of business, like derobing and all this stuff. And David and his men are just like sitting there, don't you laugh. If you laugh, don't you, don't you do this. Like, here comes Saul walking in to go to the bathroom. What a meeting. And he's going, so they said to him, this is David's men talking to him. So they said to him, look, this is the day the Lord told you about. I will hand your enemy over to you so that you can do to him whatever you desire. What? This is the day we've been waiting for. Your enemy is here. Saul, who is pursuing you with 3,000 men to kill you, David, and here he comes unknowingly into this cave to go to the bathroom. Like, look how vulnerable he is. He has no idea we're here. Take care of business. David, you've got business to take care of. Kill him. The Lord has clearly handed him over to you. This is the day you've been waiting for. Kill him, David. David's men are convinced this is a divine appointment. This is an opportunity for David to take Saul's life. Kids, I love having you in here in the summer. Uh, I need a volunteer, someone who likes to throw things and is, is really good. All right, I see your hand. Come on up, buddy. Okay. He's been dying to do this for weeks. It's your chance. All right, go ahead and stand on that carpet. I also chose you because I don't feel bad about putting you in a trash can. All right, come here. It's clean, I promise. All right, just hold on tight, okay? Don't fall down. So here's the name of this game. <laughs> You're gonna throw that, but first, I'm gonna start spinning you. And after I spin you a few times, I'll tell you it's now time to throw, and you're gonna do your best to knock that pyramid over while I keep spinning you. Are you ready? Here we go. So I'll tell you when you can throw. All right, three, two, one, throw it! Ah! Oh. Nice try. All right, go pick it up and knock that over. Go take care of that. Can you get it? One, two, three, go! Oh yeah, nice. <laughs> Nicely done, Leland. It'd be a whole lot easier if I was not spinning you, right? You can, you can keep it. All right. Spinning makes that a little complicated. Did you know uh, prior to the Great Wars, um, we had bombers, like airplanes that would drop bombs on targets and so forth. And so coming into World War II, 
the way this works is like if there's an aircraft and you have bombs, these bombs are not self-guided. They don't have targeting systems on there. It's you drop it and gravity then leads it wherever it's going because of the momentum, the angle, the direction. And so you've got to just factor in all these different things at play, like the wind speed, how fast you are traveling. The earth is actually moving too. So depending on the altitude of the plane, like so many factors in this made it really difficult to actually hit your target. And so every nation, particularly in the Great Wars, they're trying to figure out how can we be more accurate with this to actually hit our target, to create lasting devastation. Like we want to have maximum impact, destroy the target. And the hardest part of that is just hitting our target. And so all these scientists are trying to come up with ways to do this. And so largely the, the bombers, they would beat these mathematicians actually doing these massive equations, like trying to figure all this stuff out of like exactly when to drop it because the planes think that they have a trajectory, but then they're getting shot at. Like there are things, anti-aircraft missiles, all these like bombs and everything exploding. And so they would largely have to shift course. They're going faster, slower, depending on what's happening all around them. And so they're having to like real time do all this math to figure out when exactly to drop the bomb, like spinning around and having to know exactly when to throw that thing and actually hit your target. It's difficult. And so this one guy comes up with what was called the Nordum bomb machine. And it was basically a primitive computer to try to do those calculations for you so that you're not relying on a human to very quickly do all this math and figure out, and say, okay, now, drop it. You'd have a machine to try to help. And it actually still was not very effective or accurate, um, but it was helpful. It was a step in the right direction because the obvious strategy in bombing is precision and destruction. This is your opportunity to make the greatest impact on your enemy, to take out your enemy. It's right now, at this very precise moment, all these factors going on, all of what's happening, and you have to know exactly when to strike, when to pull that trigger. David's men are saying, now is the time. You've got 3,000 men outside looking for you to kill you. We stand no chance fighting them. And here comes the one leading it all into a cave, the most vulnerable moment of his life. And here's your opportunity. Pull the trigger, David. Take him out. This is the moment you've been waiting for. And now watch what David does. Then David got up and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's rope. Afterward, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's rope. He said to his men, I swear before the Lord, I would never do such a thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. I will never lift my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. With these words, David persuaded his men and he did not let them rise up against Saul. Then Saul left the cave and went on his way. David decides... They're all saying, hey, this is your moment. This is the strategy. This is how we end this, David. And David says, well, what, what strategy should I employ? What's gonna be my tactic? And he comes up with mercy as his tactic. That David decides that mercy will be his strategy. In this confrontation, he will then confront Saul with mercy. He mercifully spares Saul's life. 
But don't miss what he's doing there. Like his conscience is bothering him. He did not take his life, but he's like, look, he even calls him the Lord's anointed. Yet he knows that he has now become the Lord's anointed. The Lord has rejected Saul as king. And yet he's saying, I have such respect for this man and his position. I will not raise a hand against him. I feel bad for even cutting the corner of his robe off. Guys, stay back. We're not killing him. Let him go. He holds his men back and Saul leaves the cave completely oblivious to what just happened. Completely oblivious that David was able to sneak up. And I, like in my imagination, it's just weird. But I've got to imagine Saul's just like in there whistling a tune or something because David creeps up behind him, holding his breath surely, and cuts off the corner of his robe and Saul has no idea. He leaves the cave and David feels bad about even that. Why would he cut the corner of his robe off? Well, he's definitely proving a point. And we're gonna see how he makes this point in just a moment. But, but don't miss this. The, the, the law given to Israel includes that you would not cut the corner of your, you would actually have a tassel on the corner of your robe and your garments. And that tassel is to be a reminder of the covenant and the law of God. And so to cut the corner off would be to remove that tassel that is this reminder, this symbol. And this is on his robe which would be the most obvious symbol of Saul's status as the king of Israel. And so the robe is now unwearable because it no longer has a tassel. And yet the robe is the symbol of status for the king of Israel so that everyone would know that is the king. And so David has symbolically shown yet again the kingdom has been taken from you but he spared his life mercifully. He spares his life. And we pick up in verse eight. Saul has just left the cave. After that, David got up, went out of the cave and called to Saul, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David knelt low with his face to the ground and paid homage. David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of people who say, look, David intends to harm you. You can see with your own eyes that the Lord handed you over to me today in the cave. Someone advised me to kill you, but I took pity on you and said, I won't lift my hand against my Lord since he is the Lord's anointed. Look, my father, look at the corner of your robe in my hand for I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. Recognize that I've committed no crime or rebellion. I haven't sinned against you even though you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between me and you and may the Lord take vengeance on you for me, but my hand will never be against you. As the old proverb says, wickedness comes from wicked people. My hand will never be against you. Who has the king of Israel come after? What are you chasing after? A dead dog? A single flea? May the Lord be judge and decide between you and me. May he take notice and plead my case and deliver me from you. So David, in this moment, comes out. He's like, Saul, hey, look. He actually calls him father. You might have forgotten that at this point, David has married Saul's daughter, so he's actually his son-in-law. Hey, father, look. Look, the Lord actually did hand you over to me today, but this is what I did. I have the corner of your robe as proof. I could have taken your life, and I didn't. So why are you chasing me? Who am I, a dead dog, a single flea that you would chase me out here? What is the king of Israel doing chasing me? What have I done? I've spared your life. Why are you doing this? David is passionately affirming his loyalty to the king that he spared his life. He has nothing against him. He is not going to take his life. 
But David also strategically refers to the Lord as judge. May the Lord judge between me and you. What David is doing there, he's showing that he submits to the ultimate authority, divine authority, and he sees other authority instituted by God and that divine authority handed down. And so he's saying, I will not oppose you like I would not oppose God. But what he's also doing in that is he's making a masterful argument. He's saying, Saul, I've done nothing, I'm innocent. You are trying to take the life of an innocent man, thereby endangering me, but what you are actually doing is endangering yourself. Do you think that you are safe from God if you were to come take an innocent life? So I give you to the Lord for judgment. He is masterful in this confrontation. He comes with mercy and then he points it all back to God as judge, trusting that God will take care of this. And watch how Saul responds, verse 16. When David finished saying these things to him, Saul replied, is that your voice, David, my son? Then Saul wept aloud and said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have done what is good to me, though I have done what is evil to you. You yourself have told me today what good you did for me. When the Lord handed me over to you, you didn't kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go unharmed? May the Lord repay you with good for what you've done for me today. Now I know for certain you will be king and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Therefore swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David swore to Saul. Then Saul went back home and David and his men went up to the stronghold. Do you see a shift there and the way that Saul is addressing David? For chapters now, since Saul got angry and jealous about the way that David was successful in his battles. David became known as the son of Jesse. Where is Jesse's son, Jonathan? He's pursuing the son of Jesse. He won't even call David by his name anymore. And yet now, confronted with mercy, as David mercifully spares his life, Saul now says, David, is that you, my son? You see what he's done in that? When we get into conflict, one of the first things that we tend to do is dehumanize the other person. You start to think of them as less than human. And watch what mercy does, that it reverses that and makes you human again. That is what we must do in our confrontations. When you want to confront someone with the right heart, then you must stop and see them as human, as another image bearer of God. They are human, and this is what mercy does. To demonstrate mercy is to say, we are human. It personalizes it again. And then Saul confesses, you're right. David, you will be the next king. The kingdom will be established in your hand. And his pursuit of confronting David in order to kill him comes to an end. Because David chose the weapon of mercy to confront Saul with. And I want to contrast these two guys for you. That if you look at how this has played out, Saul is seeking a confrontation because he cannot let go of the grievance with David. He cannot let go. No matter how much David has run, fled from his kingdom, Saul is still bent on finding him. He cannot let go of the grievance. And yet David sought to end the grievance and avoid conflict. Saul continually is seeking to actually confront David. And yet David uses a strategic confrontation to bring an end to the conflict. Saul confronts with hatred and the intent to kill, and yet David confronts with mercy and the intent to bring peace. 
Christian. You are called to be a peacemaker. What will be your weapon of choice? To just win the battle? Or to bring peace? Through mercy. That is our calling. If you want your confrontations to result in peace, use the weapon of mercy. And isn't this what the gospel has done? The gospel that results in peace for us. That God would confront us with mercy. There's absolutely a confrontation that we are wretched in our sin. And there's a confrontation that comes, but God confronts us in mercy. This is the gospel, this story that all the scriptures is about. It starts with a good God who created everything good. And then his good creation, us, as the pinnacle of that, we rebelled against him. We sinned against him thinking we could usurp the throne. We could be our own God. We will decide what is right and what is wrong. And so in rebellion against God, we brought this curse on ourselves that now the land is cursed and it fights back and we are at enmity with God and enmity with each other that there's conflict now. There's division, there's strife. There's all this wretchedness and there's ultimately death. This physical separation from life that we will physically die, but this spiritual separation from God that we are spiritually dead. And so we are in this fall and yet then God enters in in mercy and grace, undeserved favor. He steps into humanity. Jesus takes on human flesh as the God-man, fully God and fully man. And he steps in and he lives a sinless life that you and I could not live. And then he dies the death that you and I deserve on a cross, taking our sin on himself, the very wrath of God poured out on him so that we would not have to face that. He confronted us with mercy. That is grace. This is glorious that we have salvation because God is merciful. He chose the strategy, the tactic, the weapon of mercy to confront us and bring peace so that we can have everlasting life with him, to walk in full forgiveness and freedom forever with him, to enjoy him. But there's this other part of the gospel story that we neglect a lot, and that is that he is actually restoring and recreating everything. That the day is coming when he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion. There will be an end to this madness. There will be no more tears, no more sorrow. The former things will all have passed away, and Jesus himself with nail-scarred hands, still in bodily form, resurrected, and we will be like him. He will reach out and wipe the tears from our eyes. What a day. And everything will be made new. We will live for all of eternity in great delight, blissful joy, loving God in community with him forever. That he will be our God. We will be his people. We will no longer have need for teachers. I won't have a job in this capacity because he himself will teach us that we will walk with him to gaze into the face of Jesus. Can you imagine to just look love in the eye and be reminded of how much he loves us and how when he could have come against us with the sword, Zechariah 3 talks about how the sword is stretched out, the sword of God, but you know what it is stretched out toward? The shepherd, Jesus, the good shepherd, and all the sheep will be scattered that Jesus took on the very wrath of God for us because he confronted us with mercy and now we have peace. And one of the reasons, side note here, I hope I don't upset you, but one of the reasons I think that men so often neglect our duty to lead 
and, and why our churches overwhelmingly are majority female is I think that we shy away from hard things. And so I want to I step in a little here. So follow with me. Let's go into some deeper water. This is, what, this is what Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 24. He said, this is him praying in Gethsemane, knowing that he's about to go to his death. The cup, the wrath of God is to be poured out. He's to drink from that cup. Jesus is about to face all the sin and shame of the world to take it on himself, to be actually betrayed, rejected by God. That he will now be abandoned, forsaken, so that we would never be forsaken. Knowing what was to come, Jesus prays this. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. This is what we look forward to. That for all of eternity, we will look forward to and enjoy gazing into the glory of the intra-Trinitarian love and glory that is shared for all of eternity, from all of eternity past to all of eternity to come. That the Father, Son, and Spirit, three who's, one what, this one God in three persons has always enjoyed each other in this great overflow of love. And Jesus is there praying, saying, look, this is what I want. I'm going to this hour because, Father, I want this. I want them to see this, what we have enjoyed forever, this overflow of love, this fountain that overflows of just mutual delight and love and joy and beauty and glory of the Trinity. That is what we were birthed out of. That God did not create us needing us, but out of an overflow of his delight for himself and his glory, he wanted us to come about and then to see that, to step into that and enjoy that forever. This is why 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about how Jesus is systematically defeating every enemy and in the end so that God would be all in all. That is the ultimate end of everything is that God would be glorified and we would just see it's all him. Nothing more. And we get to enjoy that for eternity. You must see the end. And that will help you today to confront with the right heart. Because you know what the big shift was for Saul? David standing there with the knife in one hand in the corner of his robe in the other. I could have killed you. And you deserved it. But I showed mercy. And so today, Saul says, my life flashed before my eyes. I could be dead. What would I have in death? Everything that I'm chasing you for. Everything that I'm jealous of. Everything that I feel threatened that you could take from me. Well, death would surely take it all. And so his perspective shifts as he realizes when he's confronted with the reality of death. Oh, this is all wrong. David, you are more righteous than I today. Happy Father's Day. Think about death. What do you have for all of eternity? But I want you to hear that and see the beauty of that, that everything that you could accumulate in this life will be gone. But everything you could accumulate for the life to come, oh, forevermore. It's tenfold. It's magnified. And it's God himself. 
as Jesus said, to gaze into this glory that we have loved each other. You have loved me before the foundation of the world. I want them to see that, Father. And we get to see that. We get to be part of that. We get to be shown the immeasurable riches of his kindness for all of the ages to come that it'll never be exhausted. God just showing us over and over how he'll blow our mind with how much he loves us and how kind he is. And so think of death. And now we can rightly come into confrontation and say, oh, I can actually aim for peace now. Because all the stuff that would push me into this in a wrong heart, what is that compared to eternity and what I have to come? So I just want peace here now. There are things worth confronting but confront them with the weapon of peace. Confront them in light of eternity. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we are so thankful for how much you love us. Jesus, that you would ask for that, that that would be your aim, God, for us to just see your glory, to enjoy that, to step into the overflow of your love for yourself and your glory, and that is our greatest good. So, Father, we repent of our sin confessing to be sinners. I'm so thankful that you are a savior who confronts us with mercy like David confronted Saul in that cave. God, would you shape our hearts to be such that the gospel of your good news would define the way that we live this life and we would be just all the more challenged and encouraged to share this good news of peace with the world around us. We love you. God, would you bless this church Grow us in your word. Help us to be faithful, obedient, and all things to you. I love you. I treasure you because you are the greatest treasure. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.